Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. Congresswoman Elizabeth Esty is in her third term after winning re-election this past November. She serves the 5th District, made up of Northwest and Central Connecticut. And today she joins us in studio to answer your questions. Healthcare and Russia have dominated the headlines out of Washington, and we'll talk about them this hour. But what issues do you want your representative in the U.S. House to address? You can join the conversation. That number, 860-275-7266. Email where we live at WMPR.org. You can find us on Facebook Live and Twitter at Where We Live. And if you're watching on Facebook, you can leave your question for Congresswoman Esty in the comments section. I want to welcome Representative Elizabeth Esty to our studios. Good to see you. Good to see you, Lucy. What's the climate in Washington these days? Unsettled, you know, unsettled. It's hot, it's summer, it's steamy. And currently right now, you know, all eyes are on the Senate looking to see what's going to happen on the health care bill. And with Senator McCain's surgery last week, it appears it's at least nothing going to be happening on that this week. Fortunately, I've got a full plate of things going, especially in the Veterans Committee where we were noted by the New York Times this last week as being perhaps the only really functioning committee in Congress. So we're, we've got a hearing tonight. I fly in this afternoon, fly down there, and we've got a hearing from 730 to 930 tonight for a new, G, a new GI bill, which I hope we can talk about because it's good stuff happening. You were just uh, at a, uh, a town hall of sorts in Bridgewater, Connecticut. What are residents telling you? What do they want to hear you working on? Well, this was, a, this was you know, some of the real activist groups that have gotten on fire after this last year's election. And healthcare was a big part of the topic of conversation. A lot of concerns on healthcare. Uh, campaign finance reform came up. I'm a strong believer in it. I think I'm the only person in the U.S. Congress who's actually run and won as a challenger and run and lost as an incumbent at the state level under a publicly financed system. I really believe in it. I think it's really important. I think we ought to have it at the federal level. So we talked about that. But Lots of different issues. People wanted to know what, you know, what can we do about the economy for Northwest Connecticut? And we talked about that. Um, Russia, as you can imagine, was also a topic of conversation, too. We've already gotten some tweets from listeners over the weekend. And since we mentioned health care, uh, Jean wants to know, uh, she says, small business and employees in Connecticut have suffered under the Affordable Care Act. She says, crazy deductibles, unaffordable premiums. What's your answer to fixing um, some of the issues with ACA without completely repealing and replacing? Well, I think that's exactly what we need to do. And Jean's right. You know, there are a lot of great advances from the Affordable Care Act, certainly for a lot of individuals. You know, I look at folks I know who um, were uninsurable because they had pre-existing conditions. It's been transformative for them and a huge relief, and they're getting the care they need. But it isn't working well enough, and that's why Democrats and Republicans need to be working together on the fixes. Uh, I'm part of a group, a bipartisan group, that's starting work on that, looking at the individual market in particular, which is having some real challenges on affordability. But Gene's right, small businesses are seeing that too. So it doesn't really work if at the end of the day, individual families are having to pony up $20,000 for premiums. That's not, or super high deductible, that's not really 
providing you care. So these are problems, and they need to be fixed. And those are not, they shouldn't be ideological battles. So we need to make it affordable, quality health care available to all Americans. And that's just a fact that we need to figure out how to fix. People point to Medicare as an example of um, helping um, get quality care to people, even if they're not a senior citizen. What's your, ta- what's your take on that? Well, two things on Medicare. And, I, and actually, part of this discussion, you might know, when I was listening to Senator Tester and Heitkamp talk a little bit about that extending, there's a fair amount of interest in looking at maybe extending Medicare to, say, down to age 55. Uh, We know that a lot of folks in that sort of 55 to 64 range are not able to get uh, health care. And so that could be helpful. Um, Another thing, frankly, on Medicare, though, this has to do with costs. One of the things we could do to help deal with costs, and the biggest driver right now, is prescription drugs. The Congress needs to authorize Medicare to use the power of the market to negotiate for drug prices. Insurance companies are given this authority to do it, and they do. If you're in a big insurance plan, your company, your insurance company negotiates to bring down the cost to you for prescription drugs. We have tied the hands, Congress has tied the hands of Medicare, of the federal government, of the federal taxpayers, to use that same market power for the American people. That's something I'm really pushing hard and really want to get my Republican colleagues on board with trying to do that. We're talking with Congresswoman Elizabeth Esty today. You can join the conversation. You can ask her a question at 860-275-7266. We're talking about health care and the future as uh, the Republicans again delay a vote. The Senate Republicans delay a vote uh, now that Senator John McCain is ill. They need his vote to get (laughs) that that margin. So uh, when we're talking about health care, too, we know that this country is in the midst of an opioid crisis. What are you most concerned about in terms of the kind of programs that could be left at the wayside? Well, a lot of us worked really hard, and I got to say, you know, in our state, which which tragically is the th- third in the nation in opioid deaths um, as a percentage of our population, it's a huge problem here. And we worked really hard last year, big bipartisan effort. Um, the CARA Act, which was uh, Comprehensive Addiction and Recovery Act, which I was part of. I was on the conference committee between the Senate and the House along with Joe, Joe Courtney, and we got really important provisions. They're helping states, more importantly, helping families right here in Connecticut and across the country who are struggling with the damage of addiction. And a lot of us are really concerned that if the Affordable Care Act is ripped up and thrown away, that will lose the protection and the financial support that's being provided right now through the 21st Century Cures Act, through what we, all this bipartisan work we did last year. And mental health uh, equity was part of it. Parity was part of what's happened under the Affordable Care Act. And that means you're getting some of those addiction services and wraparound support for for folks with addiction. It's a substance, substance abuse is a mental health issue. And we should be treating it that way, not as a moral failing. And if we get rid of, you know, root and branch, the Affordable Care Act, then you go back to a time when that was not covered by a lot of insurance plans. It's, it can be expensive. It can be hard. But we need to be helping people. This, the, the grips of addiction are terrible. It's devastating for families. So I want to make sure that not only is the funding there, but more importantly, families know they have that certainty that they're entitled to or not going to be looked down on or judged when they're trying to get help. 
The stakes appear higher here in Connecticut with a state that has yet to pass a budget. Social service providers are worried about their clients uh, who um, rely on these treatment programs. I mean, what do you say to those families? Well, that's why we're working hard. And, and I'm sorry. I'm sorry about the dysfunction in Congress. And, and I think it underscores how, um, how important it is that we do bipartisan work. Nothing good long term is going to happen without uh, Democrats and Republicans working together. And right now, sadly, you know, Republican leadership decided not to include any Democrats in any of the discussions. We haven't had a single hearing. We haven't had a single opportunity to amend the bills. And, and so that's disappointing, not, not because of a partisan thing. It's just we're a country of Americans who are trying to figure out a better way forward, and that's got to be done with both parties together. That's what was done to pass Medicare, was one, what was done to pass Social Security, was what was done to pass most of our environmental laws, clean air, clean water. Those were bipartisan efforts. That's why they've stood the test of time. And that's what needs to happen around health care. should stop being a political football. You mentioned dysfunction in Congress, but dysfunction in the Connecticut General Assembly. You used to be a representative uh, in the Assembly. What are you hearing from your constituents? I know that you, you represent uh, your district in the federal government, but there's a lot of pessimism and frustration there was going to be a vote in the General Assembly tomorrow. That's been put off. Well, I certainly am hearing a lot um, when I'm out and around, as I am, you know, every weekend, and then the weeks when I'm when I'm not in D.C. when I'm here during the week. That's frankly a lot of what I'm hearing about. Mm -hmm. People are really concerned about what's happening at the state level. They want things to not be chaotic. A lot of concern about what the lack of a budget or what very severe budget cuts may mean for families. And may mean for communities. I'm certainly hearing from mayors, first selectmen, you know, board of ed members who are saying, how can we even finalize our budgets? We don't even know what the situation is going to be. So predictability is not only important for personal budgets and for businesses, but it's important for families when, and communities when they're looking at a state budget that's, uh, that has yet to be resolved. So I wish, I, I wish early... Uh, rapid resolution of this matter because it's really it's really painful for people and it's costing money and heartburn. This is uh, where we live. You can you're hearing Representative Elizabeth Esty on the air right now. You can ask her a question eight six zero two seven five seven two six six. We also have an audience on Facebook Live. If you search where we live, put your comments or questions uh, in that comments field. I want to take a call now. Jeff is calling from Prospect. Jeff, you're on the show. Um, hi. Good morning. Uh, Thank you for taking my call, Congresswoman uh, Esty. Uh, you mentioned something about reform to uh, the GI Bill. Mm -hmm. um, I just recently returned from Kosovo with approximately 80 uh, National Guard soldiers from Connecticut. Uh, in 2016, we deployed uh, in support of a UN mission that's been here since 1999. Uh, we deployed under a order called 12304 Bravo. And that order, unfortunately, does not, it, it's exempt or does not allow those soldiers to get eligibility for the post 9-11 GI Bill. Um, so I'm wondering, uh, you mentioned a new GI Bill, I'm wondering what can be done for those soldiers to give them that opportunity. They spend a year away from their families uh, and the benefits that an active duty soldier would get would include that. So just trying to see where we're going with that, please. Uh, great. Well, thank you, Jeff, and uh, thank you for your service and, and the folks in the Guard that you served with. 
Well, I can tell you that the bill that we're, um, we introduced last week, bipartisan in the House, um, is forward going, going to address that inequality. Um, the truth is we now have a volunteer force, and our GI Bill was always set up really on the expectation and understanding that those who served in active duty were there because they were drafted. With a volunteer force, you and many across the country um, have been in the guard of the reserves and in effect are, it clearly are in active duty. So the bill that we're, we're hoping to pass this week will, for new recruits at least, and we still need to deal, and you're absolutely right, for the post-9-11 folks like you and, and those in, in, uh, in your National Guard unit, um, is to say that you are eligible if you're in the Guard, if you're in the Reserves, if you meet cumulatively the active duty requirements, you will be eligible for the GI benefits. One of the other big reforms that we've done, because we know that's a huge problem and it's just not fair. So, so a major focus of our effort was to give parity and equality for National Guard and Reservists who are performing the same duties that those who are, quote, in active duty in, enlisted are doing. One of the other big reforms, which we think is so important, is to allow those GI benefits to be used over a lifetime. They don't expire after 10 years or 15 years, and they don't have to be used consecutively. It's cumulative months of, um, of GI tuition assistance. Well, that's really important as we're in a lifelong learning era. And I know, I know folks who are in their, say, late 40s or early 50s now who served a long time ago. But now they're finding it would really help them to go back to school. They didn't use those benefits then. They could really use them now. They want to get, say, a welding degree at NVCC in Waterbury to go get one of those great new welding jobs uh, down building, you know, building new subs. Well, they can't use those benefits now. They expired. So we're getting rid of the expiration date, and we're allowing more flexible use. So, again, we'll keep working, Jeff. Thank you for your service. I wish this bill were retroactive. It's not, but we're working on trying to do that and certainly forward-going We've heard the concerns that you've expressed, and we're making sure forward going, we're going to address them. Um, the GI Bill is just one of many benefits that uh, veterans receive for their service. What do you say uh, to veterans? We hear a lot about other than honorable discharges or um, un un unhonorable discharges or dishonorable discharges um, because based on their service, now they're asking uh, the VA to open up the claims again so that it proves that, look, this thing that I did while I was serving the country related to some condition I mm -hmm. received while serving. A lot of these uh, men and, and women were cut out of getting those benefits that they deserve. Can you talk us through a little bit of the process of how uh, the Congress is working to clean up um, some of that to allow these people to get the, the benefits that they, they deserve? Well, I'm really glad you mentioned that, Lucy, and I know, you know how committed you've been and how active you've been literally being in country and being with our troops, and I want to thank you for, for your coverage of that because it brings it home to people of what's at stake and, and the wars we're still fighting, which for some folks, uh, too many people in the country aren't aware that, you know, how many young men and women are still in active duty around the country uh, and around the world. Um, so what we're doing is we've got a commitment from the new secretary, from Secretary Shulkin, that this is a really high priority for him. We have legislation we're working on as well, but he has announced that as a policy matter, the VA is going to begin to look at these and at least provide mental health services, because that's usually what it relates to. It usually is related to mental health claims um, that got somebody labeled 
as less than honorable discharge. Uh, so in fact, it, just as part of the defense bill last week, I was trying to push them to include a provision to specifically notify anybody who has less than honorable discharge what benefits they're entitled to. And I was actually told, you know what, that's already part of the practice and already part of the base bill, so we're not going to take your amendment. So I think there's a growing awareness. And again, this is a bipartisan effort. I've been working with Mike Kaufman, who himself served for a long time in the military, served in the Air Force out of Colorado. He introduced legislation on this. I serve with him on the Veterans Committee. So we've been unified within the committee. My, my colleague, Beto O'Rourke, out of, out of Texas, um, a bunch of us are pushing hard to try to get this change in law and at least get it changed in practice right now so we can help people out. You've mentioned, mentioned bipartisanship, and that's important. Um, some veterans advocates like IAVA, so this is Iraq and Afghanistan, sure. uh, Veterans of America, um, they say the hard work is ahead of you, and that is trying to figure out how to fix the Veterans Choice Act. Uh, can you ex explain to our listeners a little bit about some of the problems when that program was enacted and, and how Congress can work through those? Sure. Well, the Choice Act, people may remember there was really quite a bit of a scandal, and it was not so much for our part of the country and not in Connecticut where I can say that, you know, it's not perfect, but we've got, you know, quite good coverage, dedicated professionals, but we had some really bad behavior in a few parts of the country, some VAs where folks were doing terrible things, and they deserved to be punished, and veterans suffered. Mm -hmm. Veterans suffered um, and were lied to. And so out of those controversies and out of those that misbehavior, um, Congress a few years ago passed what was called the Choice Act, which was to allow you to go outside of the VA system and get it paid for by the VA, go to a private provider. So now that turned out to be a pretty extensive and, shall we say, expensive promise. And people are still working out how that, what that may look like. Um, currently, the rule is if you live 40 miles or more from a VA facility, then you can go outside the VA system to a private provider and that'll get covered. Um, in working closely with the secretary of the VA, we're looking for not necessarily miles, but probably the particular services that you need. Because sometimes you may be close to a facility of some sort, but it may not provide the VA. They may not have VA support there for that particular, say it's cardiac um, help that you need. The cardiac help may be 90 miles away. And if that's the case, we think it ought to be covered. It, it should be dependent on the services that you need, not necessarily is there any clinic outpost of any sort. Um, but we're working hard uh, across you know, Senate and House to figure out an affordable, fair, appropriate way to make sure those most in need and most in need of being able to go outside the system because they're just too far um, or they're too frail that they should be able to get service where they are. Um, so we're working out the details on that. The choice bill has got to be um, extended and reauthorized by the end of August. So it's coming up soon. That's a really high priority, and it's in heavy negotiation uh, between the House and the Senate and with the administration to find out a good way forward. I want to take another call, and you can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. Ben is calling from Wallingford. Ben, you're on the show. Hi. Uh Thanks for taking my call. I was just, when we're talking about health care and uh, improving it, I was wondering why none of the Connecticut delegation, including Representative Esty, has co-sponsored Ron Conyers' Medicare for All bill that would cover everyone and solve a lot of the problems with the system that we have now. All right, Ben, thank you for your question. Well, thanks, Ben. 
Um, you know, I, I'm not going to speak for the for the rest of my colleagues. They can they can speak for themselves. I, I would say there are a couple the couple issues. Uh, one is the pragmatic one that right now with with uh, the control of the House and the Senate and the White House where they are, um, a lot of our efforts need to be on trying to get some uh, get some agreement with our Republican colleagues to fix things. Um, and we're just trying to keep the Affordable Care Act major promises and major commitments around affordability for everybody, around pre-existing conditions, young people, mental health and other things in place. Um, and I think Medicare for all is is a great objective but is a bridge too far right now politically. There are some specific issues with uh, with my colleague John Conyers' bill. And in fact, uh, Bernie Sanders is getting ready to introduce um, one in the Senate, which I think addresses a number of the concerns we have, which are way down too much in the weeds about specifically if you were going to go down that road, what would it look like? I think there are, there are better ways and some specific things. I'm, I'm pretty careful about what I put my name on on bills. And so I am totally in favor of making sure all Americans have quality health care that, that's affordable. I think it should be a right in this country. But the ways in which you go about it matter. And the political reality of where we are and where I'm going to put my lean in and put my uh, hardest efforts um, are also part of the part of what I got to figure out. We're going to take uh, one more call before we head to break. Ron is calling from West Hartford. Ron, you're on the show. Oh, thank you. Um, uh, I just want to uh, let the congresswoman know that uh, uh, I'm, a, I'm a Vietnam veteran. I'm a priority one uh, veteran VA healthcare system. Uh, I'm really against VA choice. I think it's an attempt by Congress to privatize the VA, and what Congress is not telling uh, us is how little uh, they're paying uh, doctors in reimbursement. Uh, and Congress is also not telling the public that doctors are not required to take uh, VA choice. And if you ask a private doctor today uh, about VA choice, uh, they'll be scratching their heads wondering what you're talking about. Uh, so I. That's my opinion. I, I like the. I go to Newington, in West Haven. I have absolutely excellent care over there, and I think VA choice is uh, really uh, the wrong road to go down. Thank you, Ron, for your your comment. Well, thank you, Ron, for your service. Number one, and you know, this year as we're recognizing a big anniversary of the Vietnam War, I think it's incredibly important that we all as a country thank everyone who served in Vietnam because I, I suspect you were not thanked when you came back and folks I know who served were not. Um, New Milford actually just dedicated a memorial over the weekend to recognize the service of those who served in Southeast Asia. Um, I am not in favor of privatization and I and my interest in trying to figure out what to do about the choice program is very much to ensure that that does not become a nose under the camel's uh, a camel's nose under the tent to move towards privatization. But there are different things in different parts of the country. And I'm not surprised, I'm pleased and not surprised, Ron, that you are finding Newington and West Haven to work great for you. And that's what I hear from most of the folks I represent, um, that it does work well for most people. And that's why we want to keep it in place. But there are folks that's not. And that has more to do Ron, frankly, with some parts of the country which have had very big increases in their veterans' population, and they don't have facilities. The facilities can't handle the workflow of the number of people. So I think what we're seeing in New England is really significantly different than, say, 
use probably one of the most egregious examples, Phoenix, where they were, you know, people were on wait lists for months and months and months to get appointments. That's frankly not what we're seeing here. So again, it's a very different issue for us. And that's, that's part of the beauty of how the U.S. Congress works, you know, with your help. And those are the folks who live in my district. And I'm sad to say none of you three guys actually even lives in my district. I'm going to have to tell Rosa and John that they should, uh, you know, they should be talking to you. Um, but, but I can bring the perspective from Connecticut on the Veterans Committee to make sure that what we do doesn't undermine a VA system that's working really well in Connecticut for you, Ron, and for lots of folks. And, and that's very much my commitment you should have the. You should be able to use what works well for you, and and frankly, for most veterans in Connecticut, it is the VA. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel, Congresswoman Elizabeth Estes, in our studio today. Coming up, we're going to shift to some other issues like transportation, manufacturing, and more. And we'll also take more of your phone calls. Got a question for Representative Estes? Eight six zero two seven five seven two six six. Email where we live at wmpr.org. Find us on Twitter at where we live, and watch on Facebook Live. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. In studio with us today is 5th District Congresswoman Elizabeth Esty. We're taking your questions for her at 860-275-7266. You can email where we live at wmpr.org. Find us on Twitter at where we live. And hello to our viewers on Facebook Live. Just search where we live to watch us in studio and send your questions in the comments field. I wanted to to shift to transportation now. Uh, We're getting a tweet from Kevin who writes, I'd like to hear... Uh, Congresswoman Estes' thoughts on aligning high-speed rail along 84. We know your constituents are are used to that gridlock over there. Also, the fate of the Tiger or transportation of federal grants and other non-car specific transportation programs. Well, great, and thanks, Kevin, for for the opportunity to talk about one of one of the things I think could be transformative for Connecticut, which is real high-speed rail that could get you from you know. Connecticut down to New York City in less than an hour, and that would really help transform our economy. Um, you may have seen last week the Federal Railway Administration uh, backed off of its initial proposal and plan to increase high-speed rail capacity along all along the shoreline. There was huge opposition from our friends and neighbors in southeast Connecticut who did not want that and made that very clear with hundreds and, in some cases, over 1,000 people showing up and saying, we do not want high-speed rail cutting through our towns and say a place like Old Lyme. And I completely get that. But Kevin, it sounds like you're like me. You see, I know a lot of communities uh, through the central part of the state where we see this as something that could be a real plus for us. Now, this is a long way off from any plan being in place. But what, what the feds did last week was say, we're not going to put it on the shore. And we're going to think about putting it through the middle of the state, maybe New Haven up you know, through Hartford on up to Springfield and across to Boston, um, or then with spikes going down to uh, to Providence, or maybe 84, um, which is something I've been pushing for. Again, I think it should be in the mix. You have to figure out how you're going to finance it. There are a lot of uh, you got to figure out what commun- how you put the routing, how does that work with 84, lots of unanswered questions. But it is clear transportation is a key to our economy's future, which is all about people's jobs. So it's hard to have a 21st century economy in this state or anywhere in the country with a mid-20th century infrastructure, which is what we're struggling with now. What's your take on President Trump's infrastructure plan? It's a $1 trillion infrastructure plan. Are you confident that this could help the busy Northeast Corridor? 
well as the vice ranking member of the Transportation Committee in the House, I like hearing a big number and a big commitment. Now, the devil's in the details, and so far there haven't been a whole lot of those. Uh, not much in the way of details. And what we do know about, I think, is too heavy, too heavy reliance on what's called public-private partnerships, too much leverage, uh, which could be a giveaway to developers um, for projects that would happen anyway, and, and frankly, too much benefit for, for folks who otherwise would build projects. What we need to have is serious investment, and it needs to be smart investment. Um, I'm concerned that the highway, that the appropriations bill last week in the House and the president's own proposal would get rid of some really important federal grants like the Tiger Grant, which has been used for some really important projects, you know, in my district and places like Waterbury. It's been used to help redo the train station down in New Haven, which is an important part of our rail corridor. So I'm going to keep fighting for those Tiger Grants. I think they're important. Um, but but make no mistake, the country needs investment. We are so far behind what other countries are doing in infrastructure investment. China's investing, you know, five to ten times per capita what we are. And it's just, you know, they're making a huge play on this. Um, our European uh, counterparts, Canada, they're all making way more investments in transportation and infrastructure. And to that, I think we should add something I call infrastructure. And that is with an economy that runs on information. We need for that we need energy, and it should be affordable, sustainable, clean energy. And it needs you need to have internet everywhere. And so, and face it, the the systems need to be cyber secure, and they need to be resilient and redundant. And so, I think that needs to be folded in as a matter of our economic and our national security, those need to be parts of this element. So my Green Bank Bill that I just introduced a couple of weeks ago with Chris Murphy is part of our effort to do that. And Connecticut was the leader, first Green Bank in the nation, and the investment by Connecticut taxpayers to help provide a little boost and leverage to private dollars has meant we've now seen almost a trillion dollars of investment in this state on clean energy, which has produced they estimate 13,000 jobs and technologies that we can license and sell to the world. It's very exciting, and it's exactly the sort of good use of government incentives to help encourage the private sector to take things and run with them. Now, you mentioned uh, the Green Bank concept. Uh, the likelihood this could be adopted nationwide? Well, what we're looking to do, there are six states that have green banks already. Ours was the first, and there are some municipalities that do too. And I'm working hard on some of my Republican colleagues, including especially those who live in states like New York. New York has a very successful Green Bank modeled on Connecticut's. And to go to some of my colleagues in New York who I do other legislation with to see if they consider getting on board with this bill. We were talking about transportation. I wanted to focus on manufacturing now. Again, uh, in your district, that's an, um, uh, an important uh, issue that, that matters to your constituents. Um, just recently, you voted in favor of, of a House bill uh, for the National Defense Authorization Act. Uh, tell us how that's helping not just the big defense contractors like UTC, but a lot of the small suppliers around the state that are giving components to UTC and EB and others. Absolutely. And yes, there was a big defense authorization bill passed last week. Uh, a lot of jobs for Connecticut and a lot of potential jobs. Uh, the district I'm honored to represent up through the Naugatuck Valley in particular 
is is the home of American manufacturing. It's a proud tradition. So Chris Murphy has, helped, has sponsored, and I've joined him in helping bring Electric Boat and bring, you know, UTC and the big companies in Connecticut to bring them into the 5th District to say, look, you've got tremendous manufacturing talent, but it may be in small and family-owned companies. Let's figure out how to expand the supply chain to supply to you, whether it's on the commercial side for, say, Pratt & Whitney engines or whether it's on the military side for the submarines. Let's figure out how to make better use of that. I'm especially committed to those family-owned manufacturing companies. My grandfather started a company like that 65, 66 years ago now. And one of the challenges can be trying to make it through the gauntlet of federal requirements on procurement, and especially military side can be tough. But I know, you know, we stand united in, you know, me, the governors, all of us in the congressional delegation, governor's office, and trying to figure out how to cut through that red tape and make sure our great manufacturers, whatever size they are, big or small, have a chance to, to create those jobs as important, well-paying jobs right here in Connecticut. This is where we live. Congresswoman Elizabeth Esty is in studio with us. You can ask her a question at 860-275-7266. Speaking of UTC, we recently had Beth Amato on the program. She's Executive Vice President and Chief Human Resources Officer at UTC. Um, And we were asking her about business climate here in Connecticut. She says from their standpoint, UTC standpoint, Connecticut's a good place to work, but... We have, you know, lately, however, when we recruit people in, I would say they will Google State of Connecticut and they'll see some of our peers have made other choices about where they want their headquarters. I think, though, looking at the whole, we like Connecticut. So they like being here, but they have issues with recruiting sometimes because of the climate, because of what's being said on the national stage about Connecticut's budget problems. Um, You know, what's your reaction when you hear that? Yeah, no, it's it's a lot of heartburn around that. You know, we've got a great quality of life in the state. And I find when I talk with whether it's business leaders or whether it's folks who live here, people love this state. We have great schools. We have a beautiful state. We have fantastic recreation. You can hike in the mountains. You can hike on the Appalachian Trail and can swim in the ocean and sail. You know, there we have tremendous, uh, you know, tremendous cultural gems in our state. There's a lot of great things about it. But we don't always put it together very well. And, you know, frankly, we tend to we tend to focus a lot on what's not right. And, you know, it's good to help fix things. There's a lot that can be fixed. And certainly predictability in the state budget would go a long way. I'm making some smart choices there. But in an era when people can pack up and move, um, I think Connecticut should be a little bit prouder of and talk a little bit more about the good things that we're doing, which is not to, not to say we aren't going to address the things we can do better. Of course we should. But I think we don't do ourselves any favors when we only talk about what needs to be fixed and we never talk about why do we love to live here. It's a fantastic place to live. This is where I you know, came to raise my family. It's where my husband grew up. It's a, it's a beautiful, spectacular state, incredibly diverse and exciting and innovative. And we should be talking more about that. And that's true. But we do hear from working class families who are on tight budgets and they feel like they can't get ahead living here in Connecticut. Well, I think that's true across the country. And that's why we're seeing not only it's what we saw in the elections last year, and it's what we've seen around the world. And those are really big forces that are going on about automation, artificial intelligence. But I'll tell you what makes me confident, Lucy, and, and that is our state is actually better positioned 
than most to do well in this. We've got great educational investment. That's a key component to the new economy. Um, we may need to use it differently. I mean, part of it is we kept our vocational high schools. We were really smart in Connecticut. I helped lead that charge in the state legislature back in 09 and 10. Well, those proved to be incredibly important for these mid-skill level jobs that are well-paid but don't require four years of college uh, studies and four years of debt you got to pay off at the end of the day. So building our community colleges and our technical high schools, we can actually fill a lot of those jobs in manufacturing, coding, and other things without taking on full debt. But we need to think a little bit differently, and frankly, we shouldn't be looking down our noses at great, at great jobs regardless of what degree it requires to get there. Um, so that's, that's, again, that's an attitude thing. Um, and, may, and using our schools year-round, mm -hmm. using them in the evening. Those are taxpayer dollar investments in our community colleges, technical high schools. Let's put those in service in the evening for folks who want to get reskilled for the jobs that are open and available right now. Uh, Congresswoman Essie, we're getting a lot of questions online from uh, what people, Americans see um, as what's happening in Washington. They see, again, a lot of dysfunction, a lot of polarization. Um, Susan writes, what do your Republican colleagues have to say in private? Are they as partisan as it appears? Give us your take with your colleagues uh, in the House. Not as partisan in private. I'll tell you that. Not as partisan. Most of them. Most of them not as partisan in private. You know, at 6 o'clock in the morning at the gym, everyone's just trying to stay awake and, and work out. But there's a lot of kidding around. And, and, I, and I say this, and I mean it in all seriousness. People I serve with are patriots. Doesn't mean we agree, but we're patriots. We love the country. And each one of us was sent. We get one and only one vote, whether it's the Speaker of the House or the most junior person who got sworn in two weeks ago from California to fill a vacancy. Our votes are all the same. And we're trying to represent this diverse uh, country in a challenging time where, frankly, the public's divided too. So, so we've got responsibilities, and I work really hard to, to be civil and respectful of my colleagues. And I think we need to be thinking less about maybe compromise, which seems like a dirty word because it feels like you're giving up your principles or your values, which I don't want to do. I don't think I should. But I do think my job involves creating consensus. And that means you start with the values that you share. And you start with those values and you build on them. And that's one of the reasons we've been so successful in the Veterans Committee, passing the first overhaul of an appeals process in 30 years, entirely bipartisan effort. We've been able to get good things done in transportation. I'm working on a brownfields bill to put to put aging industrial sites back on the rolls. So if you start with those bread and butter, mom and apple pie type issues, you can build some trust, and then it makes it easier to take the next bill. So that's the approach I'm at least taking. Uh, I didn't go there to fight. I went there to get the stuff done. My district really, frankly, doesn't care for either political party. 43% of my voters uh, have chosen neither of your party's party and their independence. So I think about that every day, and increasing number of Americans just want us to get stuff done. That's a really uh, disheartening uh, survey when you when you think about the people in your district just aren't happy with either party. You're focused on getting the work done. But when people see the perceptions of what's happening in Washington, they are discouraged. I mean, the Hartford Current had a, a story uh, this morning that not only are people tired of their politicians, but they don't even want to get involved in the election process and to run for local office. Oh, actually, I, would, I, I disagree on that. I have seen more interest in local office 
But not not all of Connecticut. Not all of yeah. Connecticut, but I got to say, my district. I, I was in a meeting last night in Bridgewater. I am having people who've never thought about it before come up to me and ask me, you know, how did I get started? And I say, hey, I I was a room mom, and I started being one of those folks who went to town council meetings and board of ed meetings, and then I was asked to serve on the appointed position on the library board, and then I ran for the town council and served there and made some. You know, changes in my community that I thought were important. Working across the aisle, because Connecticut's a pretty Republican town. Uh, Cheshire is where I live. Um, that's how it gets done. Democracy is a great thing to celebrate. But we shouldn't just be talking about democracy. It's something we have to do. And like anything else, you get better by doing it. So I encourage people, if you've got ideas and energy, you don't have to have the answers. You just have to have a commitment to try. And, and think about if not running, serve on a local board, serve on a local commission, or, or start a nonprofit, or do something you care about. Democracy is in question. We have to prove that it works. It's up to us to prove that it works. I want to fit in another call before break. Uh, Joe's calling from Hartford. Joe, you're on the show. Quickly. Yes, good morning. Uh, yeah, I have, a, I have a question. This is more of a Connecticut uh, delegation question. Uh, there's a huge uh, financial crisis going on in the northeast part of the state relating to uh, crumbling foundations. There's over estimated to be about 2,000 families that have a problem. Insurance isn't covering it. The state seems unable to do anything about it. What is the federal delegation going to do to help the, these these uh, homeowners in Connecticut? Uh, well, well, thanks, Joe. I, I can tell you the folks who are taking the lead on that, uh, Joe Courtney, who represents the, the second district in, in the Northeast, is taking the lead. Um, but also working with, um, and it's actually just across the border, uh, with Richie Neal. Um, Richie Neal is a longtime mayor of Springfield and now a longtime member of Congress from Western, uh, Western Connecticut. He is the top Democrat on the Ways and Means, Means Committee, and I know they've been working. Uh, Joe uh, and the senators have been working with Richie Neal on trying to get some, some help and support for folks who it turned out, you know, it was bad sand and gravel that has a chemical composition that's leading to these foundations crumbling. It's a terrible thing, something nobody really knew about. And, you know, my, my heart goes out to everybody who's there. And, and this is one where I hope the, the federal government can help provide support just the way that they do if a hurricane rips through your community and you had no way of knowing. So, so we're working on it. We're trying, Joe. And stay safe while driving. <laughs> This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Congresswoman Elizabeth Estes here with us to take your phone calls. Also, this conversation being broadcast live on Facebook. Are you watching along? Leave your question for Congresswoman Estes in the comments section. And we'll be back right after this quick break. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Representative Elizabeth Esty of, of Connecticut's 5th District is in the studio with us uh, as we uh, talk to you about all kinds of topics. Uh, one thing that isn't getting a lot of attention but I wanted to get your take on was net neutrality in terms of um, in in, uh, the fact that the FCC is looking to overturn uh, their rules. Uh, broadcast company, broadband companies uh, have their take on how they should, the, the Internet should be regulated. Should Congress be getting involved? Well, you asked what topics have come up. Actually, that came up last night in Bridgewater on net neutrality. Um, I'm a big believer in net neutrality. I think it's a really important part of innovation and a free flow of ideas in this country. And, and frankly, for business development, it's been key to 
the big internet boom and the tech boom in this country has really been fueled heavily by by having net neutrality, um, which really means you can't kind of charge differential rates. We got to figure out how to invest in internet everywhere, <laughs> and and we need a financing model that's going to do that. But I am very worried about what happens if we start charging some more and uh, for well, face it. Friday night when you want to watch your Netflix or your Amazon Prime, it will be a real problem. If you, you're going to be charging, it will be like congestion pricing. You'd be paying a whole lot more at that point. So I'm a big believer we've got to be doing something on that. I do not at all support the administration's efforts to move away from net neutrality. Um, because, again, 21st century economy runs on information. And, and frankly, I also see it as a part of democracy. More and more people are getting their news and getting their information. Well, I should say information or getting their rumors or whatever it is they get about understanding what's happening in the country and the world. They get it online. And so it's another reason why I think neutrality is really important for democracy, that, that there needs to be easy access. And so I'm, I'm a strong believer. I don't serve on the committees that are doing the oversight on that. Uh, but, uh, but again, it's something that people should be paying attention to. Um, and I do think it relates to a free press, and I do think it relates to an educated public, which is absolutely essential for government accountability, a political accountability, and, and a free country. Well, we're almost running out of time. I want to take another quick call. Uh, John's been holding from Torrington. John, we just have a couple of minutes. Go ahead. Okay, quickly. Thank you for taking my call. This is for uh, Representative Estee. I have an idea. Since we can't have single-payer or Medicare for all, which is what would be greatly preferred by most, uh, uh, because except for uh, a percentage of people who think that the government can't do anything right, which is not true. Anyway, here's my idea. Take the insurance companies, since we're into them already, uh, and 15% of their gross should go back to uh, supporting doctors' payments and medical research. And they should be allowed to take that deduction uh, when they report their gross income. Uh, that would support the doctors better, and uh, that would include, of course, Big Pharma and the insurance companies, anybody involved in making a big profit off the people. Uh, and until we can get to the point where we have single-payer, and I think that's what was preferred in the beginning, and it wouldn't fly because, uh, you know, certain people in Congress and in the Senate uh, wouldn't allow it for obvious reasons. People were making too much money, and that would hurt everyone. The requirement should be that everyone should have to contribute All right, John. Uh, on, a pro, on a prorated scale. In other words, if you had no income and the state was supporting you, a certain percentage should be taken out of your pay whatever it be, uh, but everyone, it should be a law that everyone has to participate. All right, John, let's get Congresswoman Estes' take. Well, well, John, you've obviously spent a lot of time thinking about this and understand some of the complicated politics and in trying to make big change in what is a sixth or a seventh of the entire U.S. economy. Um, you, raise a, you raise a great example of the kinds of ideas I think we need to be putting on the table. We want to have the cutting-edge research for the world. We pride ourselves on that. But people have to have access to and have doctors and hospitals willing and able to provide care at the reimbursement rates they're getting. Uh, something we didn't even talk about, Lucy, that's at, at risk under the repeal uh, of the Affordable Care Act uh, proposals that are out there in the House and the Senate. 
um, would be devastating for places like Northwest Connecticut for our rural hospitals because the Affordable Care Act has made it possible for them. They have payments now that they can't balance their books and provide care to folks without those. So, so again, if we want to have care out there for everybody, we've got to look at innovative ideas. And, and, and John, I will certainly add that to the mix of this bipartisan working group I'm in, that we're trying to come up with some solutions and some ideas. Now, I understand uh, we're just almost out of time, but I wanted to ask you about your fundraising at a record pace. Do you feel like your seat's at risk in 2018? Well, this, this seat is always, uh, you know, is always a very independent-minded seat. And we saw unusual things happen in the 2016 election. And, you know, there's a lot of good work to be done. I think there's likely to be a pretty partisan battle going over the governor's race. I think that's likely to be tussled over by the national parties, which creates a climate that can be difficult to operate in, put it that way. So, again, better to be forewarned and forearmed. Speaking of the governor's race, you're not interested in running? Not at all. <laughs> nope. I, you know, and I, if, I, if I were, I would, I would be doing that. But um, I'm a believer in public service. Uh, I'm getting things done. I've been surprised how effective I've been. Donald Trump has signed two of my bills. The first two Democratic bills signed were mine. Uh, the big appeals bill, I think, is going to get signed, too, our GI bill. I'm hopeful for brownfields. I've got a lot of legislation going, and I think I've been effective for our, our district and state. So Congress needs to function as well. So I'll leave it to others to to deal with running for governor and dealing with the problems right here within the state. And I think I can be most effective for the state by doing what I'm doing here and in Washington in the U.S. Congress. Well, thank you so much for coming in today. I understand that you're heading back to Washington after the show. Heading down to Washington, uh, unfortunately from God's country up here, but <laughs> down to get things done. <laughs> Congresswoman Elizabeth Esty of Connecticut's 5th District, thank you so much for your time today. Thanks, Lucy. Our show is produced by Lydia Brown and Jeff Tyson. Special thanks to WMPR intern Carmen Baskoff. Our technical producer is Kion Wolf. WMPR's executive producer is Katie Tolarski. Learn more about the show, wmpr.org slash where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Thanks for listening.